Well, good morning. Mike, thanks again for your warm welcome and especially for your friendship over all these years. Uh, You've been so many things to me too. Uh, I think of you as a catalyst in my life. You've been a person that's often injected all kinds of ingredients. Do any of you know that experience of Mike? Kind of injecting ingredients that, uh, that change us. But I've also really appreciated simply your steadfast faithfulness. He's one of those people who uh, just randomly calls me from time to time out of the blue, not just to ask questions, but more often actually just to ask how I'm doing and to try to offer words of encouragement. So I have really appreciated that over all these years, and it's uh, a great joy and privilege to be here. This morning in this uh, series that you've been doing, we are going to have an opportunity to think about probably one of the things that I would say is as close to the heart of God as any single thing could be, which is the theme of community. In a bigger sense, it's the theme of communion. It's the fact that God has created a whole world toward which God's deepest and most passionate desire is for communion with God, but also to create us with the capacity to have communion with one another. And yet the story of the scriptures is the story again and again of the way in which the greatest burden of God's heart is the brokenness of that communion. The way that we've been made for this unbelievable gift to be known and to know one another, to know and be known by God and to know and be known by each other. That is to be the characteristic quality of what it means to be people made in the image of God. And yet the whole narrative, it takes 66 books to just give us a depiction of all the ways in which human communion, community, has been racked. Racked by various decisions that you make and I make and other people have made and make today. Last week in the tragedy in Texas is just the most horrific kind of a demonstration of what is really a much more common reality, namely that we randomly subvert relationships. We randomly subvert communion. It's the thing that we say in our deepest heart, this is what I would most want, is to be in a, in a context, in a world in which relationships are free and open and honest, trusting and faithful with God and with each other. And the story of every newspaper article is a story in many ways of tested or broken community. So this theme is a dominant theme, and the language of the Bible over and over and over again is the lengths to which God will go to do everything possible as a result of his own commitment to us to restore and renew and recreate community. So what we're doing here is not just talking a little bit this morning about how to sort of have a better small group or how to do a small programmatic thing. We're talking about some of the deepest work that God's power is necessary to accomplish. In fact, the gospel says that this is so serious that it will take actually nothing less than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to make communion possible again. Annie Dillard says in one of her books, if we understood what the power of God was really about, we'd need to have pews with seatbelts and and crash helmets should be handed out at the door. What she's trying to get at is that God is always about something much deeper and greater, much more transformative than we often are prepared to really understand. This morning I want us to think a little bit about this theme in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is perhaps the most assaulting of the four Gospels. It's really like the smelling salts Gospel. It's the Gospel up your nose. It's as though Jesus is saying, okay, now here, Breathe deeply on this, and I dare to have you fall asleep. So this morning, I want us to think about this assaulting 
unexpected, awkward, challenging gospel. That is nothing less than what Jesus says is to be for us the gift of life. Let's look at one of the passages in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, where what we see is a picture of a new community that Jesus is establishing. By this stage, we have come to this gospel of surprise in many new layers that have already occurred, but by chapter 4, which is the end of, in a way, Matthew's long four-chapter beginning to the gospel. We come to this moment. He's just called the disciples. The call has been simple, come and follow me, a statement again of communion. I want you to be with me. It's not that I have projects for you to do. I want you to be with me. And then over the course of time, I want you to mirror the life and love that I have. And at the end of chapter, chapter 4, we get a picture of the kind of new community that Jesus is establishing. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This one little paragraph is the beginning of what we might call a kingdom sociology. A picture of a new community that's brought about because of people's attraction to Jesus. The character of any Christian understanding of community or communion really begins in that seedbed. It all is about how our life is oriented around and toward Jesus Christ. But here the portrait that's given us in this kind of snapshot is, and what happens as Jesus moves out in his ministry is that people that are unlike one another find each other because they are drawn to Jesus Christ. And they bring whoever and whatever they are. This is not a homogeneous unit. This is not a portrait of people that meet a certain standard. This is people simply who acknowledge the reality of their need, who are hungry for the kind of communion, the kind of healing, the restoration of life and relationship that Jesus can bring. And here in this amazing little portrait at the end of chapter 4, it's as though the Gospel of Matthew plants this right here and says, now watch this unfold. This little foretaste, this attraction of people coming to Jesus because of a desire for healing, well, watch how this narrative unfolds and the whole rest of Matthew's gospel, even at the very end of Matthew 28, will be a gospel that will be all about mirroring and reflecting this kind of new communion. I wonder if we have that as our starting point. Human communion at its core is meant to be centered in the one who is the source of life, And human communion is meant to not just look like an ordinary sociology, but really a new sociology, a new kind of social relationships of bringing unlike people in their need to Jesus Christ and finding each other in that process. The Sermon on the Mount, which follows immediately in chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew's Gospel, is really a portrait of what it's going to take to create this kind of community. And though we're not going to spend time this morning going through those three chapters, and I'm sure you've probably read and studied them many times on your own or perhaps in other sermon series, those three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, are really Jesus' summary of life in the kingdom of God. And it's going to require realigned relationships. It's going to require a different kind of activity and response 
emotionally to each other. It's going to change how we see ourselves. It's going to change what we do with our feelings, including our anger. It's going to change how we perceive our neighbor and how we move toward them. As Jesus says, with a mark of love that is not going to come naturally to most of us, but a mark of love which is very much a part of the character of God's own love in Jesus Christ. It's going to be a new community. And the peak emotionally of the Sermon on the Mount, I always think, is that moment where Jesus says, in fact, I want you to love your enemies. It's, it's not a big deal if you love those who love you. That's not a great accomplishment. The question is, do you love those who don't like you, who aren't like you, who are your enemies? Now we're moving into the gold standard of the kingdom of God when it comes to community. It's not just how do I find people that are sort of resonant with my personality, where we're all happy together. No, this is a call to a new kind of communion. A number of years ago, I was speaking at an event that had such bright lights on the stage that I could literally see almost no one that I was talking to. But what I could see was a really large video monitor here that had an image of me. And then over here on the other side of the stage, there was another video monitor with another image of me. And then, of course, there was me. So there was me and me and me. I thought, this is sort of the postmodern trinity. This is, this is the world I was made for. This is the world where everyone is in full agreement, where we're in perfect communion with one another, where we all see the world exactly the same, where we're on the same page together all day, every day. Like, that's the kind of communion that I would seek. But that's called narcissism. <laughs> that's called deception. That's called illusion. Because communion is not just how do we find people that are resonant with us and reflect back to us who we want to see ourselves to be. Now, the disruptive quality of the kingdom of God, that the surprise, the shock, the awkwardness, the smelling salts is the evidence again and again and again in the gospel that Jesus calls us to get beyond ourselves. We are included in the communion. We matter in the community. But to enter the kind of communion that Jesus is describing is going to have to move us beyond ourselves. And as he goes through the Sermon on the Mount, he comes to all kinds of illustrations and examples of what it's going to require. And then, in the most amazing way, as he comes to the very end of the sermon, he says something which is familiar to us, something which gets probably at the heart of why we find ourselves stuck, often as a church, in the culture. Where the crisis of many people on the outside of the church, and frankly, many people who have spent years inside the church, is typified by the crisis that Jesus sets up in expectation at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was, it, was its fall. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. See, Jesus doesn't want us to stand at the door of the church and say, good sermon, Pastor. What he's interested in is people who actually live a changed life. You've heard this. Now, you will build your house on rock only if you actually do what I've been teaching. 
The main critique of people outside the church, and frankly, often inside the church, is that we say the right things, but we fail to actually do them. It's the disconnection between what we profess and what we do. Hypocrisy is the number one issue and crisis in the integrity of the church. And even in this last week, all kinds of events have occurred in our national life which elevate that question again and again and again. So who really are we? We profess to believe something that we believe should actually change our life. We just, well, we just don't necessarily have an easy time doing it. That's not a surprise to Jesus. This is why we need God's grace. But what is the trajectory? What is the way forward? What is the pathway toward a life that looks like Jesus? Well, it looks like actually mirroring the kind of life and love that Jesus has just described in Matthew 5 through 7. So when Jesus says, for example, love your enemies, he's not just throwing out bait to raise our curiosity or to cause an argument or to make us feel uncomfortable. He's actually saying, I want you to walk this way. Come and follow me. And what happens as we walk through the rest of Matthew's gospel is that we see again and again and again the way that Jesus responds to people across a broad spectrum of their trust or mistrust of him, their alliance or their rejection of him. And over and over again, what he responds with is compassion and mercy and truth and love. It's interesting to me that at the end of this section, Matthew's gospel says, and all those who heard his teaching were astounded, for he taught them as one who had authority. That word authority in Matthew's gospel is repeated at a number of critical moments. And in each of the places where that word is used, it's, word to, it's a, used word, a word used to express the connection between what Jesus says and what he does. His authority is in the congruence, the church's lack of authority in our culture. A legitimate lack of authority in our culture is our failure to live what we profess. Why is the church in America in the state that it's in? There are many ways it could be diagnosed. I want to suggest this morning is the absence of integrity, of authenticity, and of a demonstration of that in real relational terms in a real world. Instead, the church still looks very much like our same sociology before we ever knew Christ. We're just happy that he's going to baptize us. We're sort of, we're in the family, but nothing really changes. Nothing that really causes us to be in a new communion, with a new kind of community, with a new set of relationships, with a new opportunity to move beyond ourselves and our comfortable sociology and into a new and different world. A few years ago, when I was reading the newspaper one morning, I came across an article about the growing popularity of private jet travel. It focused in this particular article on a widget maker who had become a gazillionaire so he could fly privately. But he wanted to describe, as the article went on, the conversion that he had experienced that brought him from commercial air travel to private air travel. He said it was like this. One day I was traveling across the country in first class. There was a woman with a, ba with a baby in business. The baby cried the whole way across the country. That settled it, he said. I'm never flying commercial again. And then he gave us his mission statement, and it was this. Because I've decided that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Okay, let's just meditate on that for just a minute. Okay, <laughs> let's just let these words sort of roll over us. Okay, so I've decided that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Now, when I first read this, I thought, that is just so disgusting. 
And then I thought for about five more seconds, and I thought, well, that's awkwardly familiar. I don't practice things at quite the elite level that he does in private jet travel, but it would not be true to say that I don't do all kinds of things every day to quietly, often invisibly, exclude from my life people who might bum me out. Is this not why we all love having caller ID on our phones? <laughs> Is this not what Mark Zuckerberg understood about the need to seamlessly friend and defriend people on Facebook? Is this not what really actually organizes a great deal about where we live, where we go, who we see, who we don't see, who we hear, who we don't hear, who we respond to, and who we avoid? It is an elaborate sociological scheme, invisibly called something like normal, unless we are infected deeply enough with the kingdom of God, who really calls us now into a new kind of social order, a new kind of communion. So the goal isn't just, how do I find people who could be friends to me? That is a crisis often, and it is an important thing. But how do I enter into the communion, the community that is the kingdom of God that's going to move me beyond the categories of the places where I just want to do everything possible to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out? Jesus says, not come to me unless you bum me out. Jesus says, come to me, all you who truly bum me out, and I will give you rest. See, Jesus is drawing to himself an unexpected communion that is not the mirror of my ethnic, social, racial, educational, economic background. It is a communion of saints, of people that includes all those at the end of Matthew 4 and all the other people that are part of the legacy of what the Gospel of Matthew shows us is the character, the unexpected character of Jesus' ministry. And that's what leads us straight into chapter 8. After having said we have to do the truth and not just affirm the truth, Matthew's gospel simply carries on and says, When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And then Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. See, it's always one thing to affirm on the mountain what we believe, but then the question becomes, what happens when you go down the mountain? And in this really invisible way, Jesus just comes down the mountain and the very first person that he encounters is almost the emblem of how to avoid or rather transgress ritual purity. If you are a faithful Jew, if you're a teacher in Israel's life, the thought that you would encounter someone who was a leper, that they might touch you or you would touch them was inconceivable. So the leper actually was required to sort of go through life saying unclean, 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 and in the context of all of that uncleanliness to avoid any kind of ritual impurity. But this leper, for reasons that are quite extraordinary, simply cries out with a completely different message. Not unclean, but you 
could make me clean if you choose. And Jesus hears the cry. The question is, so will he build on rock or will he build on sand? Will he have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? Or will he go the way that simply the law and practice of Israel had gone for so long? He stops and now in this moment, slowing down the action, Jesus says, I do choose. He touches the man and says, be made clean. See, the question that is so critical in this moment is what do we do? Not because we are encountering lepers, but because we live in a world where there's all kinds of people who sociologically, politically, economically, or otherwise are those that are represented to be the unclean. They're not like us. Thank you very much. They, they don't vote like us. They don't go where we go. They don't dress like we dress. They, they don't have the same smell and aroma that we have. They don't have the same personality and background. It might be really awkward. There might be a difficulty about doing this. I'd be afraid that it might rub off on me. There's all kinds of things. Now, very seldom do we really pause and meditate on that. No, we, we just let our sociology carry us on with the messages that say, avoid those that you think might be unclean. But here, in this confrontation, the man simply cries out, if you choose, you could make me clean. And I think Jesus is really setting up in this model, and the Matthew, as a gospel writer, is telling us, so are you going to choose to encounter and to love the unclean, those that you think might stain you? Are you prepared to go toward them, or will you just avoid them? Our sociology grooms us to negotiate the unclean in such a seamless way that no one really sees or knows it. But if we're Christ followers, if in fact we're moving forward in the way forward, and if communion actually really matters, and it's a communion that's not really about the like, but about the unlike, then what are we doing that actually moves us into deeper communion with people who might be those who would stain us? I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with pastors over the last year or so regarding the political division of congregations, trying to figure out how each side considers the other unclean. But the same thing could fall out in many other categories within churches or within churches and their communities or within the wider reach of a church and its congregation. Where are we demonstrating that we are following the sociology of the kingdom and not simply the sociology of our upbringing or our background or our our racial or ethnic or economic setting. See, Jesus is doing something that is much more profound than that. It is the seatbelt crash helmet gospel. It's the smelling salts gospel. It's a gospel that's meant to reorder and redefine our understanding of what it really actually means to be in communion. One day I was sitting at O'Hare. I was there because of the reasons that so many people are at O'Hare because they're stuck. And I was there for a really, really long time. And I'd already been there for a really long time. And now it's so packed. And I'm sitting on the edge of one of the moving sidewalks, sort of perching, eating my little hamburger. And I was noticing that right in front of me, there was a guy in line who, frankly, was just hitting on all these women that were walking by. And it was a fascinating thing to sort of watch. And I thought, at first I was getting it wrong. And then I realized, no, he was... I couldn't hear what he was saying, but he was clearly like in some way trying to get in their face. It was awkward. They were clearly brushing him off. He was a cretin, I had decided. 
And then I forgot about him and went on with my hamburger. And then suddenly I noticed about five minutes later that he had come and sat down right here next to me on the perch. I thought, so, hmm. So I said, um, you know, I was noticing your technique. (laughs) He said, technique. I said, you know, like with the women that you were talking to in line. Oh, you mean the chicks. I go, well, okay, yeah. Uh, I was noticing your technique. I said, are you usually that successful? <laughs> he said, oh, usually I have better lines. I'm just not in the mood today. It just really wasn't a good day. I just need to get out of here. I said, really? Get out of here? You mean the airport? I know it's really packed. He goes, no, I don't mean that. I, I mean, I've got to get out of sh- here, Chicago. You've really got to get out of here, I said. He said, yeah. Wow. I said, that's pretty passionate. He goes, yeah. I don't normally go further. But on this occasion, I said, so what's up? He said, well, do you really want to know? I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, today was supposed to be my wedding day. Two weeks ago, my wife or fiance and our baby were killed in a crosswalk. So today, when we were supposed to be leaving to move, they're gone. And I can't believe the state that I'm in. I said, that's just an unbelievable story. I said, do you have family here? He goes, yeah, yeah, my family's here. So your family's been supportive? No, my family didn't like her. I said, so you mean because your family didn't like her, meaning they, they didn't really come toward you when this tragedy happened? No. I got one call from my mom, that's it. So what are you doing now? I'm moving to Las Vegas. Why are you moving to Las Vegas? Because I have a job. What's your job? I'm going to be a cop. You're going to be a cop in Las Vegas. Do you know anyone in Las Vegas? No. Just the guy who interviewed me. So you're going to move after this tragedy to Las Vegas to try to figure out what your life is going to be and to take up a new job as a policeman. Do you know anyone? Would you want to know anyone? The conversation, because O'Hare was O'Hare generously on that day, we had several more hours of conversation. And it turned out that the Cretan was not only not a Cretan, but he was really just a very tragically broken person who had suffered many different things in the course of his life. And if I had simply operated, frankly, in the way that I often do, I might have sat happily on the edge of the moving sidewalk, but it would have been no relationship. In this case, it turned out that I know quite a lot of people in Las Vegas. I knew people that I could introduce him to. They ended up meeting him. They ended up inviting him into a new opportunity to find community in this place that he clearly found foreign. It was a setting where he was recasting his life in entirely new terms. He was in the vortex of the crisis. He got involved with this community of people, and for a period of time, he was really very present, and then gradually, he just sort of faded away. I don't know any more about his story than that, but what I know is that God loves him, and that, that it would have been so easy, and is so easy so much of the time, to sort of simply move past people and not really have or take the time to actually listen and to engage. Here, the one who stained in certain ways the leper 
Jesus engages and serves, but that's really the next text that's even more dramatic. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to another, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. If the leper is the person who represents ritual purity, then undoubtedly the centurion is the one who represents the enemy. The Roman dominating force that controlled and in many ways subverted Israel's life every single day and the centurion was the deliverer of that bad news every day. He was the incarnation of the enemy. And now the enemy comes to Jesus and says, I have a servant in need. And Jesus immediately responds with a willingness to heal the servant. And then the man makes this fascinating comment about, no, no, I understand how power works. You can really just say the word. Jesus slows it all down and turns to the wider crowd and says, did you hear what he just said? In no one in Israel have I heard faith like this. There are people that think that they are in the household of God that are going to be found in the outer darkness. And there are other people who are in the outer darkness who are going to be found in the household of God because they've demonstrated and enacted faith like this. And Jesus, hearing and understanding that, then heals the man's servant. And here, Matthew is intensifying even more the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount that you are called not just to love those who love you, but to love those who are even your enemies. And now the paradigm of the enemy is before him, and the question is, will you build your house on rock or on sand? And Jesus chooses to build on rock by loving and caring and hearing and engaging the enemy. So how are we doing in our community when it comes to loving enemies? I've been a pastor long enough to know that sometimes people choose when and where they worship in order to avoid one another in a congregation. I know that there's people who choose not to engage because there is not necessarily eneminess that exists between us, but hostility, brokenness. One time I was serving communion in a congregation I was serving and it had a very high stone chancel and the service pattern of the congregation was that you came up and back for each of the two elements. And so as the elders all came forward, these two elders turned with loaded trays of communion cups. They collided, and the cups splattered and fell on the floor and rolled down the steps in what felt like was going to be a never-ending echo. But what was the most profound moment to me was watching the hatred between these two elders looking each other in the face. This was not just a moment of, oh gosh, that was awkward. No, this was a moment really of of hatred. So it happened that after the service, I had a chance to have both of them together in the room. We were just talking and cleaning up. 
I said, before you guys go, I, I just have to ask you, what was that? I think the room was silent for maybe 30 seconds until one of them said, it started 22 years ago. So for 22 years, these two men, it turns out, have been enemies in the community of God's people. What unfolded was a long process of us having lots of conversations and lots of details that I had no knowledge of and lots of narrative of hurt, disappointment, disillusionment, a lot of healing that needed to happen. And there was many, many, many months later, another time when we were serving communion, and it just happened in the providence of God that they served communion at the same table in front of me. And I knew and they knew that the animosity that had defined them for 22 years was now finally gone. But if we don't work at what it means to actually be people who step toward the other, those who are not like us, who don't like us, who may even be our enemy, then where are we in our life in the kingdom of God? What capacity of love and communion do we really foster and develop? Let's imagine that the gold standard is that we learn to love our enemies, but let's not start with whether we love our enemies. What if we all became really good at loving people who annoy us? Have you ever thought of that? Just, let's just become really a community that does a great job of loving the annoyers. I don't know, you might be seated next to some. Uh, you might live with some. You might talk to them after the service. People that for various reasons you find slightly or maybe even substantially annoying. That's happened before. I've known that experience myself. I've certainly known that experience to happen between people in a congregation. So maybe we start by just learning to love those who are annoying. That would put us on a road toward growing in our capacity for the kind of communion and community that Jesus has in mind. And then maybe we could gradually come to the point where we begin to really also love those who actually irritate us. Now it's not just a slight annoyance like a fly, but now it's more like something clawing out of our life, something that really is truly irritating. How do we do with loving, irritating people? And on it goes in a trajectory again of realizing that we are called beyond ourselves to a new communion and a new community. One day I was in my office in Berkeley when I was serving as a pastor there, and a man appeared at the door. He said, I'm very busy. Uh, I'm very successful. I really don't have time for this, uh, but I wonder if I could just have five minutes. I said, wow, that's quite a self-introduction. Um, he said, yeah, well, my wife has been hanging out at this church, and she's come home and started talking about Jesus. I don't really know anything about Jesus. I thought I could just pop by for some quick bullet points about Jesus, and then if I could get that, then it would make dinner more comfortable. I said, well, gosh, you know, it, unfortunately, you've really come to the wrong person because I'm not very good at bullet points, so that's a problem. And secondly, if I gave you really good bullet points and you understood the bullet points, they would have a way of seeping their way into your life and you'd have to rethink your power and your success and your money and your family. And, and I don't really get the feeling that you want to do that. Oh, I definitely don't want to do that, he said. <laughs> I said, I know. So why don't we just brainstorm how, if she brings up Jesus, how do you move from Jesus to something more comfortable? She, he said, no, no, I'm, I'm serious. I said, well, so am I. I. I don't necessarily want to be responsible for completely reordering your life when clearly that's not something that you're interested in. He said, well, what if I come back for an hour? I said, well, that's kind of like a fat bullet point. I'm not sure that that's going <laughs> to necessarily help very much. What if I come back for 
And then he paused. He said, what if I come back for a whole morning? And then he sort of leaned in and said, you know, I don't give anybody a whole morning. (laughs) I thought, I bet you don't. (laughs) But it was too good an offer, so I took it up. Now, as it happened, this three hours that we spent together was a complete mystery to me. I couldn't figure out what was really going on, and it showed no evidence of anybody who had any kind of tiny spiritual hunger. This was not evident. It was just three hours of trying to figure out how hard the granite could be. But he wanted to do it again, so we did. Again, we did. Every time he told me, don't ever expect me in church, I don't like churches, so I was shocked when one morning there he was in the third pew. I thought, oh my gosh, dinner must have gotten, you know, really, really bad if he's actually here. So we had this conversation afterwards. He began to tell me, and really he just collapsed into my arms. And he said, I don't know what happened. I don't, I don't get it. All I know is that I was in this building. It happened to be a church, but you know I don't like churches. So I was just sitting by myself in a little chapel on the side, and I think what happened was that God just came to me. And now it just feels really messy. I said, exactly. That's the fruit of God's presence. A messiness that's going to now cause you to have to do all the things that we've thought about and talked about. But now, if this is God at work in your life, it has to unfold in community. It happened that just as I was talking, there was a guy standing not far off that I could say, you know, I'd like to introduce you to this guy. This guy is somebody who who really knows a lot about the road of faith that we've talked about. And, and I think that he could invite you into a group which would give you an opportunity for the kind of, of context to sort out what has actually been a trauma that occurred to you, that it will turn out to be a gift of good news. It will be a new communion. And now, five or six years later, that person is utterly transformed because he's been recontextualized by a communion with God and a communion with others that is unlike anything that he's ever known. That is meant to be characteristic, normal, standard in the body of Christ. This is what Jesus' whole ministry is about, is restoring and remaking communion. We can't make it a high enough priority not to be cozy and inward, but to be in the context of loving, trusting, bold, courageous, salty, catalytic communion that not only changes us, but changes the world that's around us. Lord, may it be so. Thank you so much for this congregation. Christ Church is a place that sees the world in eyes with compassion and mercy and care that extends throughout Chicagoland and and beyond in the world. And yet all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us, oh God, are in need of more of the communion with you and more of the kind of new communion that only you can create. Oh God, by your grace, deliver us from the small myopic little lens of our own self-focused, self-made world. Deliver us from the dark little dungeons of our own ego and our own preferences, our own entrapped sociology where we just live again and again and again the same script, but instead break it open because of the nature of the kingdom of God and call us into communion, deep and profound communion with you, with others, including even our enemies. For the glory of Jesus Christ, amen.